following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I read from John 8, beginning at verse 12. Let me just establish quick context. A month ago, when I was with you, um, actually be five weeks ago, I was looking at the end of chapter 7, where the events were happening during the Feast of Tabernacles, a, an annual uh, feast that chapter 7 talks about in verse 14 and verse 37. It mentions this feast, which was kind of a harvest festival. I mentioned to you that one of the things that happens is the pouring out of water from golden pitchers, and that gave a backdrop to Jesus saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink in 737. Then we had this interjection passage in the beginning of chapter 8 of the woman taken in adultery, and most experts feel, although the text does not say it, that we are still in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles in the rest of chapter 8. So it's important for me to say that, and I'm going to tell you why within my message that something was happening at the Feast of Tabernacles that has to do with this declaration Jesus makes in verse 12. And verse 12 is our main focus today. Listen to God's Word, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even though I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written, the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's holy word. It seems to me that when cities are awarded the Olympic Games, whether winter or summer, one of the planning and logistical challenges that they have to figure out is to concoct a novel way, a distinctive way, to go about lighting the Olympic torch. Maybe you can remember some ways in which that's been done at various Olympic Games. I was thinking back to one I recalled as being especially memorable, and when I checked out when it was, I was surprised it was all the way back in 1992 at Madrid, Spain. 
It was a simple act by which the torch was lit, but very dramatic. They had an archer shoot a flaming arrow into the night sky, up towards the crowds in the high levels of the stadium where, of course, the bowl of the torch was and the gas jets, you assumed, were already lit when the arrow was fired. I remember sitting there thinking, what if that arrow impales somebody in the crowd? But of course it didn't. It went where it was supposed to go and dramatically the torch burst into flame. I would suggest that there was an almost equal spectacle, if not maybe more dramatic, reenacted annually in ancient Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Our text here in John 8 does not tell us this, but if we go by other information that we have about the Feast of Tabernacles, we can reconstruct something that forms important background. At this feast, not only was there that ritual of pouring out water on the altar, which symbolized the desire that God would bring, of course, fruitful crops and water the land and cause growth and fruitfulness. And we mentioned that before when Jesus said, based on that, I am the living water. You see, Jesus was declaring things about himself based on things that they were seeing. He also said a little earlier, I am the bread of life when they had eaten the miracle bread of 5,000 being fed. The same thing is true here, except you perhaps aren't as aware of the background. And here it is. In the Feast of Tabernacles, they utilized four gigantic candelabra or candlesticks that were built outside the temple proper, but within the walls of the temple. We have the instructions for how these were to be built and know, therefore, that they were 70 feet high. Now, I, I don't have a tape measure to find out, but I'm telling you that I'm pretty sure the ceiling of this room is not 35 feet from the brick floor. So 70 feet, you have to imagine twice the height of this room. That is really tall. And these candelabra were part of this ceremony, the final part. They had bowls of oil with wicks in them at the top, And young men, priests probably, would climb up. I can't imagine how the ladders got them 70 feet in the air. I painted houses as a young man and climbed 35 feet in the air on a 40-foot ladder. In fact, I was on the second foot from the top of a 40-foot ladder a couple times, to my wife's dismay, but uh, I'm still here to tell about it. 70 feet is an enormous distance up a spidery ladder. And up these young men went with torches to light the bowls of these candelabra. Now, remember, if these were in the temple court, the temple is on a mount, the highest place in Jerusalem, visible from miles around. And this is a time with no electric lights lighting buildings, you know, no laser displays on skyscrapers or anything like that. A time when the night was dark. And so here at the end of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles were these gigantic lights in the night that could be seen from miles away and were seen by people certainly all over Jerusalem. What a sight. In its own day, at least, in a first century context, 
this was as dazzling and as amazing for people to see as, as the fireworks were on the, on the 4th of July in Washington, D.C. And people looked and they said, ah, what is this? Well, they knew what it was. It was a representation of the pillars of fire that had led Moses and the children of Israel through their desert wanderings. It was a remembrance. God is our light and our guide and he is with us like this flaming torch that we can see in the night, this incandescent representation of the glory of God. Well, maybe you think that Jesus was uh, beneath the idea of timing his message to fit particular circumstances, but I can tell you he was not. He said, I am the living water right after the golden pitchers and the water at the Feast of Booths, and we believe it was this lighting of these candlesticks at the Feast of Booths that brought him to say the all-important words of John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. As you look at these amazing lights, or remember that they were there only a day or so before, know that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a vivid piece of timing that was by Jesus speaking the truth of God. I have heard more than one biblical scholar or analyst of our culture and our times who has said that today we might as well be dwelling in the new dark ages. For all of our technological skills and sophistication, our supposed civilized advances, I don't have to go into a long list of detail to probably suggest to you that the greater depths of our moral depravity and our spiritual despair have brought curtains of darkness around us greater than at any point in modern times. One of the late Chuck Colson's better books, I believe, was a small book called Against the Night. I was surprised to realize he's already 25 years since he wrote that book. And in Against the Night, Chuck Colson gives many examples of the rapid decline of our civilization and the ways in which evil is rampant and and on the ascendancy. And he compared it at the beginning of the book to the barbarians battering against the gates of Rome and bringing down the great Roman Empire. The people who conquered Rome, you know, were not a more advanced society than Rome. They were vandals and goths people of rather primitive ways who literally invaded and battered down the gates of Rome. Well, Colson compares that and says the barbarians are already within our city gates. They are everywhere about us. And everywhere there is, he said, the smell of sunset. Vivid words. And John 3, verse 19, adds to that, that men love the darkness. Instead of fearing it, they revel in it. Men, many of them, love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. That seems to me to fit the milieu of the year 2014. Night shades of terrorism internet porn, political corruption, you compile your own list. The curtains of our society are coming down. 
and it seems darker and darker all the time. Individual freedom and expression is, is, is now king. The great idol of the day is I can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, wherever and to whomever I choose to do it. Get out of my way. What was once called common decency is neither common nor decent anymore. And we ask the question, is there some trustworthy candle burning in the midst of this growing darkness that we may look to for sure guidance and illumination? In answer, Jesus Christ steps forth in John 8, 12. And from the gloom of human despair, he makes this tremendous claim like many other great claims he made about himself. It's one that is impossible to reconcile unless you understand that it is a direct claim of deity, a claim to be God revealed in flesh when he said, I am the light of the world. The same God who said, I am what I am, says, I am the light of the world. He told that to first century people, and he tells it to 21st century people, that there's no other person who can represent that bright beacon of divine glory that traveled before Israel in the desert and gave them the very assurance of God's presence and God's direction and God's plan and God's power acting on their behalf than Jesus Christ. I am everything that the beacon of fire was in the wilderness to the people of Israel. As we consider this verse today, what I'm going to do is consider it in a first point, leave it, and look at the remainder of the text, and then come back to it again in a third point. First of all, as we look at verse 12, I say this to you, that Jesus here declares himself as the shining presence of God Most High. No less than that. Jesus declares himself to be the shining presence of God Most High. The Bible uses darkness over and over again to represent mankind's plunge into sin and rebellion against God from the Garden of Eden onward. It's a constant symbol. Darkness is something man gathers around him and and plunges into and seems to be content with, in fact, to the extent that they actually fear the light. Light, on the other hand, is a biblical symbol of God and what he is like, giving us a sort of visceral understanding. We all know what light is. You know, we can't, I don't know how to analyze it, how to tell you I'm not a physicist. I don't even know how the physicists can tell us what light is. I suppose they can, but most of us wouldn't understand what they would say to explain it. But we all know that light is something we welcome. It allows us to see. It it gives us warmth. It reveals things as they are. And therefore, it is always a symbol of God and what he does. 1 John 1.15 says, God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. No surprise then that the very first creative act we read about in the Scripture is Genesis 1.3. What did God say before any creative act of any thing else he did. Let there be light. And by his command, 
There was light. And all other things flowed from that. Light seems to represent the glory and the holiness and the purity and the power of God. Light reveals things to be seen as they are. It comforts us when it's present. It causes us to fear a little bit when it withdraws from us and we're left in the dark. We use the words of Psalm 27, a very familiar psalm this morning, where the psalmist's declaration when he's facing enemies and he's got a lot of people conspiring to do ugly things to him, he starts out, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, whom shall I fear? We could go into many, many texts in Scripture that talk about God as light in some way or another. One prominent one I would put before you is 1 Timothy 6, 16. There's a statement that speaks. It's a kind of benediction that speaks to the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no man can see. Perhaps a helpful illustration would be to think about the sun. 93 million miles away from us, but so very important to us. It's brightened up quite a bit from when I preached this sermon the first hour this morning at 8 o'clock. It was gloomy out. The sun wasn't apparent the way it is now. Isn't it interesting how much we depend on just seeing the sun? You know, if the sun is, is visible this time of year, we we go and greet a stranger or a clerk in the store, and isn't it a beautiful day today? Or isn't it great to have the sun? That's one common topic everybody can talk about, how good the weather is if it's good, of course, or how bad it is if it's bad. Scientists tell us that that ball of fire, which is actually a small star, 93 million miles away from us, amazingly, if it was 90 million miles away, it would fry us, And if it was 98 million miles away, we would freeze. Amazing. Here's this thing that we depend on. All our energy ultimately traces from it somehow or other. And it it, it makes us enjoy our days and warms us and makes life pleasant and makes things grow. And yet we can't even look at it directly. Can you? I mean, you, you think, gee, I'd just like to look at the sun for a while. So I'm just going to stare at it. Don't do it. You'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt your eyes. You cannot take in, either physically or otherwise, what the sun is. It's this blazing inferno. I'm not prepared to describe it all to you. The nuclear explosions that are going on there and everything else. I just heard on the news a little while ago that there were some sun flares. I believe it was last year. And only recently have the scientists realized how close we came to these sun flares, if they had been just a little bit different, they would have taken out America's power grid. Wow. We don't even think about things like that. But yet here is the sun that is a kind of analogy to God, the source of light, and yet so bright, so powerful, so amazing that we, we, can't, we aren't even prepared to analyze it or break it down or study it or look right upon it. And yet its light, its brightness, its warmth is essential to everything that we do. 
Old Testament prophets said that when God's Messiah finally came, one way people would know him would be the fact that he would be a light bearer. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, in its second verse, says, predicting about Messiah, who is Christ, of course, you who fear my name, for you the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. In other words, a closing word of the Old Testament said, expect somebody who brings God's light. And there was the old man Simeon. Remember him who got to hold the infant Christ in the temple when Jesus was brought to be dedicated? He held him and he spoke as a Uh, you know, a passing voice from the Old Testament, and he called this little baby a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus was fulfilling the prophet prophecy that he would be a light bearer when he said, I'm the light of the world. He brought the light of divine salvation to a dark, deceitful, sin-cursed world in a place where there was mainly falsehood. He was the searchlight of truth. In a place where people were ashamed and guilty and didn't want to look each other in the eye, he brought the brilliant laser beam of his holiness that showed people that they could be righteous on his own behalf, not because they were righteous, but because he was in their place. Jesus The light of the world, you see, is nothing other than the representation of what God is. God's brightness shining in dark places. John 8, 12 claims that Jesus is the presence of God most high. And wherever Jesus shines, God shines. That's a wonderful truth to realize today. Now, secondly, I just want to spend a few minutes with the major portion of this text, actually, from 13 through 20. It's by far the longest part of the text, but I'm not going to say too much except some summary things. But what we have here is the Pharisees' reaction. You know, they're sort of like a group of angry dogs who go around yapping at Jesus all the time, and they pretty much yap the same thing no matter what he says. But here they don't talk about the light of the world in particular. It's as if he didn't even say that. It's only the fact that they pick up on the fact that he was talking about himself and they say, how dare you talk about yourself? How dare you make big claims for yourself? The point I see here is that they're saying, why should we accept this man's bold claims? Well, Jesus answers them with a couple points quickly. It seems as if he's saying the best argument you can muster is that if I'm talking about myself, I can't be believed that you need additional witnesses. Well, he says, first of all, I am qualified to talk about myself because unlike you, I'm of divine origin. You're not. You are earthbound and see things only in earthbound terms. I am from above. I was trying to break that down into an illustration that I could relate to and Maybe you won't like this one, but here's what I was thinking. It was if Jesus was saying, you guys are like snails. Now, I choose snails because they're very lowly and they don't talk much and uh, probably not very bright. At least I don't think of a snail as having high brain power. And Jesus was saying, you know, you crawl around on the earth and, and you have a certain perspective of knowledge and you go around telling everybody what's true but it's really, really limited. And I speak with the benefit 
of the satellites from outer space put there by the CIA and the NSA. And I can see your car in your driveway and read your license plate and tell you what color shirt you're wearing when you walk out your front door to get in the car. How does that knowledge compare to the knowledge of a snail? That's what Jesus was saying to them. You people really don't know anything. I come from above. I speak from the knowledge of God. You want me to have multiple witnesses? I agree with you that it's better that two people would say something than just one person. So let me tell you who my dual witness is. God! Everything that I'm telling you about myself is from my Father. And my Father said it before I do. And in miracles and in fulfilled prophecy, my Father has stood behind everything I've said about myself. You say you know God, you know nothing. Your snail knowledge does not equal satellite knowledge. God verifies everything I'm saying about myself. The Pharisees just constantly showed how obtuse human unbelief is. We've got them around today. Confronted with everything Jesus said, with all the fulfilled prophecy, with miracles of power, so on, so on, and so on, they still say, how am I supposed to believe that? They don't believe it because they don't want to believe it. And their refusal to know Christ spells refusal to know God. Now let's leave those critics and come back to verse 12, the second part of verse 12, for a closing third point of personal application here. Because I see the second part of verse 12 after Jesus says the declaration, I'm the light of the world. He then says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Breaking the world down into two classes of people, those who follow him in the light and those who walk in darkness. And my last point asks you a question. Which group of people do you sense that you are in? You see... Jesus says he's the light of the world. That implies that it's light available to all kinds of people. Black-skinned people, white-skinned people, brown-skinned people, men, women, boys, girls, people from Malaysia where airplanes fall out of the sky, and people from America, and people from Peru, and you go on and on, okay? All kinds of people. People in the whole world can have the light of God. Do they all have it? No, it's absolutely apparent that they don't all have it. They're in two classes of people, some who walk in darkness and some who walk in light. Now, those who walk in darkness imply that they're still in that same state where Adam took them, living lives of confusion, rebellion against God, refusal to know the truth, deception, shame, and ultimately, they go to death. They die in their sins. You know, I'm pretty well convinced that most people think preachers exaggerate when we talk about those who walk in darkness. You say, you know, preacher, you, you, you make it sound like these people are just awful. I, I know some people who don't know Christ and don't want to know Christ, and, and you know what? They've got a better education than me, and they make twice as much money, and they live in a very nice house, and their marriage is doing just fine, and their kids are very respectable, and, and their grandchildren are beautiful. 
And you make out like they've got a huge problem. They do have a huge problem. In a matter of years, they're going to be in hell. That's a problem. Regardless of how well you think they're doing in this life. God's view of of things is that there is a huge number of people, we don't have to put a number or a percentage on it, among mankind who neither see nor understand the tragic condition of their souls. They neither see nor understand who God is or how they might be saved from their dilemma. And Isaiah 60 verse 2 describes their condition when it says, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness covers the people. Individual darkness fills people's minds, blinding them. They stumble around and they look at things and they say, oh, here's a thing that those Christians call bad. Well, it's actually good. Here's a thing that those Christians call good. It's actually bad. And they're, they're talking doublespeak all the time against the truth of God. They're not even in conformity with reality or morality. They're confused constantly. And in that state, they will spend eternity if someone doesn't turn the lights on for them. You see, what our sun, S-U-N, is in the solar system as the only source of light and heat, that's what Christ is in the spiritual solar system. And if you're not dwelling under the light of the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, you're walking in the dark. Hopefully, and I believe probably I am addressing a large majority of people who are walking in the light. But the question is, how can I know if I'm walking in the light? Maybe I'm just fooling myself. I'm really still in the darkness. How would I know if I'm walking in the light? I've got four fast indicators by which you may know this. One is that people who walk in the light of Christ have a true self-awareness. The Holy Spirit has revealed to you your lost condition, and that's bad when you first discover it, of course. It's alarming, but yet it's beneficial because you have to know this. You have to know that without Christ, you are lost. And so God, by His Holy Spirit, opens your mind and your eyes and your heart to see the shame of your sinful action and to confess to God I'm a hopeless person. Without you, God, I can't save myself. No matter how well I try to live, no matter how many times I think I've kept all the Ten Commandments, I'm always thinking something that means, "Uh uh-oh, there goes that one. But true self-awareness comes to those who have been given a new birth, a regeneration in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit flips on the light switch, and suddenly you see the landscape of the room that you live in. Ephesians 5.8 says exactly that to Christians, saying, once you were in darkness, now you are light in the Lord. There's light on your inside. God has regenerated you and made you self-aware of your need. Secondly, if you're walking in the light of Christ, you'll know it because you will crave more and more of God's revelatory light in his written word. The psalmist said, the entrance of your words brings light. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. All that entire chapter does is praise the word of God. 
tell God in different language, in different ways, 100, and, 100 plus verses, how great God's word is and how light-giving it is. Verses like verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Verse 105 in Psalm 119 that says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's people take pleasure in the word of God. They delight in it. They discover it. They say, oh, look at that. That helps me so much. That's a promise I can hold on to. That's, that's a sure peg I can fasten things to. A third indicator that you're walking in the light is that you're growing in what I would call a broad, all-encompassing wisdom from God. Wisdom is a wonderful gift. Not everybody has it. Those who are wise begin to see the big picture. They look at politics, they look at history, they look at science, they look at current affairs, and they begin to see patterns. Not, everything's not just hodgepodge, unrelated. They begin to see, oh, wait a minute, when I step back here, God is doing something. God's at work in history. There are pictures emerging here, and I don't see them every day, and, and I've got to get some distance to have that perspective. But God is in charge, and he's doing things. And we wisely are able to stand back and say that Christ is at the center of what God is doing, that it was from him and through him and unto him, Jesus Christ, that all things are proceeding. And so to him, Christ is owed the glory forever. Fourthly, people who walk in the light of Christ have this as they look forward. You know, a lot of times when you're looking at just today, things are really tough. I spoke a number of weeks ago about swimming against the current, always feeling like we're going the wrong way on a one-way street as, as those who are walking in darkness are all rushing in this direction and I'm trying to go this direction. And I think I must be wrong, but no, they're wrong. Well, as we look forward, we know we're going in the right direction because those who walk in the light of Christ have a bright future hope and a certainty about our ultimate destination. We are bound for a great day, capital D, in the Scripture, when we with resurrected glorious bodies like Jesus' resurrected body will stand in a new heaven and a new earth and Revelation 22 will be fulfilled. Remember, I already quoted Genesis 1 and light. Revelation 22 brings the theme to a conclusion when it says, we will see the face of Christ and night will be no more. And there will be no need of a lamp or a sun for the Lord our God will be our light. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Do you see that the Bible's brightest final promise is based on the light of Christ bursting in its fullest and final consummation. The spiritual light that Jesus lit for us by accomplishing his cross and resurrection goes on unquenched forever. The old commentator, Matthew Henry, many of you know his commentary, and he had a gift of language. Matthew Henry said this, one sun, S-U-N, enlightens the whole world, and we do not need more. 
Even so does one Christ lighten his people, and we need no other. Well said. When Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, he was endorsing exactly what Paul would write about him later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, this concluding word, that God has so shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Glory be to him. Our Father, I pray that in these dark times, if your people must endure new dark ages, remind us where the light comes from. Remind us who we are and where we are going. Remind us of him who bears in himself all illumination and all fulfillment of what you plan for mankind to see and understand. Thank you, Lord, for the bright, shining candle of Jesus Christ. I pray for some who are stumbling around in the darkness, maybe even here. They've never seen, they've never yielded their life to this one. I pray, O Lord, that you might so act upon them that they would step into the light and be people of his light. Amen.